Let's just pray for Graham as he comes. Lord, we just praise you for your word. We praise you and bless you for Graham and for his dedication to the truth of your word and the whole gospel. Father, we just ask that he would be your mouthpiece right now, that he would bring your word to us, Father. And Lord, that it would not be a seed that falls on stony ground, but Father, we would water it with faith and that it would bear fruit in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, if you'd like to open up your Bibles, we are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 27 through to the end of the chapter. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Last time we were in the book of Mark, we heard from Sam, Brother Sam Manning, about Jesus taking two attempts to heal a blind man. You remember what Sam told us about that miracle. You remember that he said we're meant to see this kind of under-narrative, not only of this man being miraculously healed, but also 
this sub-narrative of Jesus' disciples progressively having their eyes opened to who Jesus is. Do you remember him telling us that? And so what we have here in Mark chapter 8 is known as a Markan sandwich. A Markan sandwich. So we're taking a bite out of a Markan sandwich here today. What's a Markan sandwich? Well, it's what Mark does. It's a technique, a literary technique that Mark uses where he sandwiches a testimony, a miracle, something that Jesus does in between teaching. And that miracle is supposed to tell us something about the teaching that Jesus is bringing. And it begins with this interaction, I think it's beginning in verse 14, in the boat. You remember that? When they're crossing over and Jesus is saying to his disciples, do you still not understand? You're asking about the loaves. Do you not yet understand? What does he say that they don't understand? He's saying they don't understand who he is yet. Then we have this testimony of Jesus progressively healing a blind man. He takes two attempts. Was that because he wasn't powerful enough? Was it because this man's blindness was particularly, uh, it was particularly resistant to him? No, it was to show us what is about to happen in this passage. It was supposed to speak to us of the disciples progressively understanding the nature of Christ. And in today's passage, we have the clearest proclamation of Jesus' identity in the whole of Mark's gospel. We have Peter saying, you are the Christ. His eyes are open. And this miracle, therefore, is supposed to show us this picture of disciples understanding who Jesus is. Today's passage, we are going to be considering what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to be considering what is the nature of discipleship. We'll be thinking about what is the cost of following Jesus. What kind of life can we expect to have when we choose to go after him? We read in verse 27 that this conversation happens while they're on the road to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, I think when we read the Gospel of Mark, we see how much of Jesus' ministry actually took place while they were on the way to somewhere. Do you notice that? So often, Jesus is talking to his disciples as they're on the way to somewhere. Most of Jesus' ministry didn't happen in a classroom setting. Most of his ministry to his disciples didn't happen in a setting like this. It happened on the way to somewhere else. It says, on the way, he asked them. I believe this is so important for us today. Just as Jesus spoke to his disciples then as they were on the way, he speaks to us today as we are on the way. He speaks to us and speaks to you today as you are going through your daily rhythm of life, as you're carrying on with your regular responsibilities and duties. And we hear him most clearly when we're most aware of him in those duties. Have you ever read the story of Brother Lawrence? 
How many of you have read The Practice of the Presence of God? A, a wonderful little book about a, a French monk many hundreds of years ago who began to cultivate the presence of God as he washed pots. He didn't have a particularly noble role in the monastery he was seconded to. His job was to wash pots. But as he did it, he became aware of the powerful presence of God upon him. And that was when he'd hear Jesus' voice most clearly. And I want to encourage you this week. Remember that Jesus speaks to us as we are on the way. He speaks to us as we're on the way in our car to pick the kids up. Or out on delivery. Or doing our jobs that we sometimes find so mundane. Answering emails. Jesus is ready to speak to you on the way. Amen. They were on the way to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a city that was situated at the base of the tallest mountain in the whole region called Mount Hermon. In fact, if you've been to Israel, you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you can actually see the top of Hermon from Galilee, the snow-capped peak. And Caesarea Philippi was a town that was situated at the bottom of this mountain. And actually, it had a shrine. It had a temple to a Greek god called Pan there in a cave at the bottom of this mountain. It wasn't a Jewish city. It was a pagan city. So it's interesting that Jesus chooses this place, this pagan area, to ask the question, who do you say that I am? Isn't that weird? Why not Jerusalem? But he chooses this Gentile area. And I think perhaps it's a picture of what's to come. The gospel going out to the Gentiles. That question of who do you say that Jesus is going out to the nations, even as early as that. And his disciples turn to him. They give him some answers. They say, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, the corresponding story, it says they even mention Jeremiah. I always think that's rather strange, don't you? Why do they mention a bunch of dead guys? When Jesus says, who do you say I am? They tell him, dead men. <laughs> it's weird. So, why is that? Well, first, the first rumor, you are John the Baptist. How could he be John the Baptist? These guys were contemporaries. They were roughly the same age. Well, we believe that the rumor that John the Baptist was resurrected was started by King Herod. You remember King Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded at the behest of his daughter-in-law, Salome? Well, he was worried. He was a very superstitious man. He believed that John the Baptist had come back, reincarnated as Jesus, and had come to haunt him. We read about this in Matthew 14, 1. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod was freaked out. He thought Jesus was John the Baptist, and that rumor began to spread. Some believe that Jesus was actually Elijah resurrected, come in the end times. Some at this time believed that Jesus was a forerunner, that he wasn't the Messiah, but he was a forerunner to the Messiah. Where did they get that idea from? Well, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what's the significance of these two ideas that Jesus was John the Baptist or that he was 
Elijah come again? Well, firstly, John the Baptist was a moral reformer. You remember his ministry? We read about it in the beginning of John's gospel. He was out there preaching, repent, wasn't he? That was John's message, repent of your sins and turn to God. And some believed that this was the sum total of Jesus' ministry. That Jesus had simply come to say, repent, turn back to God. That his job and his role was simply to call people to a higher standard of living. And there are many today that believe that is the sum total of Jesus' ministry. There are many today that are happy to accept Christ as a good moral teacher. Somebody who we can certainly learn from in terms of how to treat our neighbor, but nothing more. They see Jesus as a John the Baptist, as a a moral reformer. Some saw him as a prophet, like Elijah. Now, Elijah was a man of God, wasn't he? He was a man who moved in mighty signs and wonders, powerful signs and wonders. He was also a man who called the wicked king Ahab to account. Do you remember that? The showdown at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And he gave Ahab something to think about, didn't he? And there were many that were hoping Jesus was going to stand down and stare down the Caesar of the time and restore glory to the kingdom of Israel. They saw Jesus as a political reformer, an advocate for the downtrodden, somebody who was going to bring glory back to the nation of Israel. And some today see Jesus in that light too as a a political figure, somebody to rally around, somebody to stand for them and advocate for the downtrodden. And he certainly is that. But they say he's nothing more. Still more saw him as just a prophet. Just a prophet of God coming with a word to the people of God at the time. And this is what Islam says about Jesus. This is what Islam says, that Jesus is a prophet. Yes, he's a prophet. He's a prophet of Allah, they say. No, he's not the son of God, but he's a prophet. Many Christians rejoice in this. Many Christians are satisfied with this. Oh, you see, they love Jesus. They love Jesus. On the surface of things, these views about him don't seem so bad. At least they see that he's a good teacher. At least they see that he has power. He might be from God. At least he's a prophet of some sort. But the problem with each of these views is they fall short. They fall short of the truth. And therefore, they are a blasphemous understanding of who Christ is. C.S. Lewis has a great little argument called Liar, Lunatic, Lord. If you've ever come across it before. These views fall short of C.S. Lewis's argument. Listen to this quote. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic 
on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? And this is the most important question of all. There is no more important question in all human history indeed. There is no question that has eternal consequences like this question has. You fail your GCSEs, you might struggle to get good A-levels. You fail your A-levels, you might struggle to get into a good university, but it won't hamper your eternal destiny. You get the answer wrong to this question, and you'll be paying for it for eternity. Peter steps up boldly, doesn't he? And he says, you are the Christ. In the Greek, we have sue ho Christos. That's what it says in the Greek. Literally, you are the Christ. The scribes and Pharisees, you see, they thought Jesus was a troublemaker. The rest of the people, as we've already heard, were confused. But Peter, he must be commended for this. He saw Jesus for who he was in spite of all of the other opinions that were out there. In spite of the fact that all the learned professors of religion, all of the governmental leaders of Jerusalem, all of them thought Jesus was nothing. But Peter, this lowly fisherman, said, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. He wasn't afraid to go against the popular view. And this is what a Christian is today, is somebody that's not swayed by popular opinion about Jesus, but sees him for who he really is. And note this, Peter doesn't say, you know, Lord, I, I suppose you might be the Christ. You notice that? There's no wavering in his voice. I, I think you might be the Christ, or you could be. You know, there's something in you that maybe thinks, maybe makes me think that you might be the Christ. But he says emphatically, you are the Christ. This is the kind of proclamation that we're to have as Christians in this world. This is it. It's definite. It's sure. We're coming to the world with a revelation. Amen? I think so often the church forgets this. We're not coming to the church with a question. So we're not coming to the world with a question. We're not coming to the world and saying, what do you think about the meaning of life? There's merit in asking that question. Sometimes it allows us to have a conversation about Jesus. But we must remember we're coming to the world with a proclamation. We're coming to the world with facts. Jesus is the Messiah. It's up to you what you do with that information. The word Christ, we often hear that, don't we? And 
We hear it so often that maybe it just becomes a word we're familiar with, but we maybe don't really understand what it means, Jesus Christ. Because we know it's not his surname. Christos is the Greek word where we get Christ from. And that word Christos is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is Mashiach. Try and say that without spitting on someone. Mashiach. So what was Peter saying when he said, you are the Christ? He was saying, you're the Messiah. Jesus, you're the Messiah. And that word Christos, it means anointed one. Anointed by God to come as Messiah, to save a people for himself. And this is the cool thing, is that we're called Christians, aren't we? So what we're called is little anointed ones, in a sense. All those who are in Christ share his anointing. Every true believer shares the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was on Christ. Isn't that incredible? So we're anointed with that same Spirit, with that same power. There's no such thing as a split in the church of Christ and those who are anointed and those who aren't. That's a lie. That's something that false teachers tell us to drive a wedge between us. Oh, they're anointed. Oh, they're just a worldly believer. No, all true believers have the anointing of Christ. Why am I laboring this point? I am going over time. But why do I labor it? I labor this point because it's important. It's important. It's important that you know what these words mean so that you don't get deceived. Okay? It's important you know that when we see Christ in the Bible, it's meaning Messiah. Because the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Gnostics, what they teach is that this word Christ, well, I've looked it up in my interlinear, it just says anointed one. So any ordinary man who gets anointed can be Christ. And so they teach that Jesus wasn't the Christ. No. Not until the dove came down at his baptism. And then he was the Christ, but before, no, he wasn't the Christ. He was just Jesus of Nazareth. But when we understand that that word Christ, yes, it means anointed one, but in this context, it means what? Messiah. Was there ever a point in Jesus' life when he was not the Messiah? No. So the next time you hear a false teacher tell you that Jesus wasn't the Christ before he was baptized, you can say, I know what that word means. Words and the meaning of them aren't just driven by the sum of their parts. All right, This is heady stuff, but please understand. Please, you can get this. They're driven by the context in which they're used. Think about it. When we say, will you hoover the floor? Will you hoover the floor? That's a verb, right? But think about the word hoover. What was it? It was a brand of vacuum cleaner. But we all know what you mean when you say hoover the floor, right? Because the context determines what that word means. You get what I'm saying? We know that Jesus was Christ from birth. Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Not who will be, but who is Christ the Lord. 
Now, when, when Peter says this, we must commend that faith. You are the Christ. Do you have that same belief? Do you believe that Jesus is Messiah? That's the most important thing you've got to answer today. Don't leave the room without deciding that for yourself. Is he the Messiah? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Messiah? But what's interesting is that there's a corresponding passage in Matthew. You know, in the Gospels, they record some of the same stories, right? They're independent witnesses to the facts of Jesus' life. They're historical documents. And in Matthew, Jesus actually says something back to Peter. So Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You remember the creed we read out? Who gets the glory for seeing that Christ is Lord? Who gets the glory for understanding that Jesus is the Christ? Who gets the glory for your faith? Not flesh and blood. Not you. Not the evangelist who told you. But God in heaven who gave you sight. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for God, By grace you have been saved. By grace... Not through works, by grace you've been saved. How? What's the means of grace? Through faith. Can you say that? Through faith. Come on, let's wake up. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. Can you repeat that? Faith is not my own doing. Wow. Faith is not my own doing. It is what? It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Yes, I believe. Yes, I choose. But even that belief and that choosing, was, I was given the ability to do those things by God. So even my faith I owe to him as a gift. Wow. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because guess what? If there was one man who was about to boast in his faith, it was probably Peter. And don't think you're above him either. Then Jesus says to Peter in Matthew's gospel, it's upon this rock that I will build my church. And many think that he means Peter. Upon you, Peter, I'll build my church. No, upon that revelation. Jesus, you are the Christ. That's the rock upon which the church is built. And then Jesus says, please don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone else about me being the Christ. We talked about this before. Why was that? Because people thought they knew who the Messiah should be. They thought they understood what Jesus' role would be. Jesus is concerned. If they all find out, they're going to try and make me king. They're going to try and force me to walk a road I know I'm not supposed to walk. How many of you understand? When you let your life be run by the mob, you will go off path. You will go off where God wants you to walk. Never let your life, your choices, your character be determined by what the mob says. Because there's a mob for everyone. Just go on Twitter, I promise you. There are things you're not supposed to believe. Will you choose to live out the life that God has called you to do, no matter what the masses say? Sometimes you have to choose to live a life that's hidden from those people. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus knew what he had to do. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. 
he taught them and he said that he's got to suffer many things. Did you hear that? Jesus had to suffer many things and be rejected. Please catch that. He suffered many things and he was rejected. That compounds the suffering, doesn't it? Because it wasn't that he was going to suffer and that people were going to look at him and say, what a brave man to undergo all that suffering. There was no redeeming quality for Jesus' suffering because he was rejected in it. The worst kind of suffering is the suffering you have to undertake alone. There's no redeeming glory in it. There's no redeeming quality. That's exactly the type of suffering Jesus suffered. Man didn't look upon him and say, wow, at the time. Look how well he bore that suffering. No, no, they scorned him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. But that's the type of suffering he bore up under. He was rejected. I wonder how many of us are ready not only to suffer but be rejected. I think there's such pain, isn't there, in being rejected by people. We might pretend we don't care. You know what? I'm not bothered about what people think of me. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I'll show you. Yes, yes, you do. You care. Watch what happens when all the important people think you're an idiot. How does that feel? Not good. Not nice. But it's exactly what happened to our Lord. Why do we think we're going to get any better in this world? Why do we expect that the Twitter mob's going to love us when they want to crucify our Lord? Why do we think that the secular elites are going to absolutely love the gospel message? <laughs> Why do you think when we preach the gospel that everyone's going to love it? Then, If Jesus suffered not only pain and suffering but rejection too, it's something that we will all experience to some degree or other. Some more than others, according to God's sovereign will. But suffering and rejection were Jesus' lot. And so when we follow him, they will be ours too. Jesus says that he must suffer. Must. You catch that? I must suffer. I must be rejected. Why? Because it was necessary to do so. Without his suffering, without his death, without his resurrection, nobody gets saved. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. It's through Christ's suffering that you are saved. Therefore, he said, I must. That's how seriously Jesus took your salvation. Do you think he could have chosen to do otherwise? Yes, but he said, I must. Jesus went to the cross for you. He suffered for you. He suffered rejection for each and every person that comes to him. Isn't that amazing? He didn't shirk his responsibility. So why should I? Why should I refuse to walk that same road? If Christ was willing to suffer not only humiliation, not only a beating, but death on the cross to save me, how is it that I should expect to not suffer for him? Peter grabs him, he turns him aside, he says, Lord, please stop this. Stop this nonsense. Jesus, you're an overcomer. Look me in the face, say, I'm an overcomer. I'm an overcomer. Begins to rebuke Jesus. He thinks he knows better. Jesus grabs him and says, get behind me, Satan. 
You are minded of the things of man, not the things of God. You know, I think this is the scourge of the Western church today, is that we are like Peter. We think we know better than Jesus. We see him suffer, we see him be rejected, but we think, no, not us. We shall be well-respected, glorified, prosperous, rich, happy. Nothing shall ever happen to our lives. We will not suffer. But Jesus says that attitude right there, that's satanic. Just a moment ago, Jesus is saying, God revealed this to you, Peter. God's speaking to you. He's shown you that I'm the Christ. Moments later, get behind me, Satan. Isn't that incredible? How a believer can be used both of God and of Satan without even realizing it. This is true of you and I. He's not saying Peter's possessed, but he's saying, listen, what you've just said is satanic. Why? Because you're minded of the things of man. You're concerned about the things of your own life, of people, of, of, of possessions, of worldly things, not of the things of God. When we become focused on this life here, on our own success, our own comfort, our own vision and, and dreams. These are the things of men. These are the things that Satan wants you to be minded of. Not the things of eternity, not the things of heaven. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me in this life, let him deny himself. Are you ready to deny yourself today? Because that's the cost of discipleship. Are you ready to deny yourself? Are you ready to give up on all those hopes and dreams? Or at least die to them in your heart? God might bring them about. His plan for your life might be to prosper you, but let me tell you this. Any true Christian, any true believer is not going to walk through this life without suffering. They are not going to walk through this life without some measure of suffering and rejection. If they do, I'll wager now they are not truly saved. They don't truly belong to Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor. Have you heard of him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship in 1937. The most famous quote in that book is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. Are you ready to die? Bonhoeffer was. Bonhoeffer was. Just seven or eight years after he wrote that, he was being hung. He stood up against the Nazis and they killed him. And for some believers today, even in places like North Korea, North Africa, East Africa, taking up your cross and following Jesus can literally mean death for you. The reality is for many of us here today, it most likely won't mean physical death. But I think we have to live in a way that we're ready to face that should it come. We've got to be ready for that moment. We have to, if we want to follow Christ. There is only one way. There's only one narrow path. And that includes denying yourself. Denying your flesh. Denying your earthly desires for comfort for success, for riches, for possessions, for pleasure, popularity, honor amongst men. We have to 
let these things die and follow Christ where he's leading. Where he's leading, he says, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be rejection, but guess what? What did Paul write in Philippians 4.13? When considering all these things that he had to walk through, all the sufferings, all the times when he felt left alone, when he was downtrodden, beaten, he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean that you can fly like Superman. It doesn't mean you can decree and declare things out of the atmosphere. It means you can endure suffering because Jesus is with you. That's what that verse means, and you can endure it today. Let me tell you, whatever you're having to walk through in your Christian walk, whatever moments of darkness and suffering, whatever moments of rejection you have to walk through, guess what? His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Amen? Christians aren't supposed to suffer like the world. Christ suffered for the joy set before him. And just as his suffering and death brought about salvation for millions, it brought about good, so your suffering, so your rejection will bring about good. It will bring about good. It will conform you more into the image of Christ. It will be a testimony to those around you. There's something different about this person. Look at all they've gone through. And they're still full of joy. They're still full of peace. They still love me. They still ask how I'm doing, but they're suffering. Christians suffer like Christ. Christians suffer in a way that redeems the world. Isn't that wonderful? Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Hallelujah. So whatever your cross looks like, whether that's suffering, whether that's physical illness, whether that's struggles, whether it's your flesh, whether it's sin you're fighting against, mortifying all those deeds of the flesh, pick it up. Pick up that cross, put it on your back, and get after Jesus. Let me tell you this, it's so much easier to do that when there's others walking with you on that same path. Just like the picture Ruth saw, when there are others walking that path, you can see them dragging their cross behind him and think, I can do this. I can do this. That's why, like Sam said, coming together as part of the corporate gathering, you might think it's just a duty you do. Let me tell you this. It's a means of grace in your life. It's a means of grace and strength to you to be together, to hear the word of God and to see other Christians walking this path. I remember when I did Duke of Edinburgh Gold. I'll shut up in a minute. I remember doing Duke of Edinburgh Gold, right? I'd been in intensive care two months before I did it. The doctors were like, should you really be doing this? But I was desperate to go on Duke of Edinburgh. I'd lost a ton of weight. Physically, I was not in a good place. I was desperate to get out there and do it. And I happened to be in a group with some of the fittest, strongest guys out there they were amazing in terms of map reading and you know we got this mountaineering route we were climbing up haystacks which is one of the peaks in the lakes we did red pike we did all these big peaks and i did it two months after being in intensive care and nearly dying and uh, do you know one of the reasons i managed to do it is there was one guy who he was just a beast he would just keep going and keep going and keep going and all i did is i'd look at his backpack I felt tired, but I'd just look at his backpack and I could just keep going. Sometimes in this walk, in this life, that's all you've got to do. 
Look at the person in front of you. Look at Christ. Just keep your eyes fixed on him and you'll be able to keep going. Don't neglect the corporate gathering. Don't neglect fellowship. Don't neglect prayer. Don't neglect the reading of his word. Let me finish on this. Jesus says, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words or my teaching in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We only get one chance at this life. One. And nobody knows how long their shot is going to last. How are you going to choose to live? Will you live for Jesus? Or will you be ashamed of him? Will you tell others about him? Or will you hedge your bets? Keep your cards close to your chest and hope they figure out somehow that you believe Christ is the only way to be saved. There's a famous Muslim convert called Nabil Qureshi. He came to Christ shortly before his death in 2015 and he said, listen, one of the things that confused me for so long about Christianity is he thought, how much does somebody have to hate me to not tell me the way of salvation? How much does someone have to hate me to know that there's only one way to be saved but to withhold that information from somebody who's unsaved? That's deep. Are we going to be ashamed of Christ and his words or are we going to live for him? Are we going to live towards the next life? We know that this life's just a drop in the ocean. Don't spend it trying to get things of the world. Don't spend your life reaching for comfort here. You won't find it. Live into the next life. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes, God's put eternity in the heart of man. Let's live towards eternity. Discipleship's not cheap, is it? It's costly. It will cost you your life. But let me tell you, you stand to gain even more. We stand to gain his life. Let's stand. Let's stand together. I want to give an opportunity right now for ministry. I want to give an opportunity. I think we just got to take this moment to recommit to walking that narrow path, to taking up our cross. I'm not saying there are people here that have gotten off the path, but you know how sometimes, just as Jesus stumbled on his way to Calvary and we need help, sometimes we can stumble too. Sometimes we need to pick that cross up again. Sometimes we, we don't suffer well. Sometimes we struggle, don't we, with being rejected. And sometimes we get timid. Or sometimes we cry out to God and we say, God, why? Why are you doing this? But he has a plan for your suffering. Some of us just need to pick that cross up again today. I want to give opportunity right now. If you just want to recommit to that journey, or if you want to say, Lord, I just need strength. I need boldness to pick that cross up again. If you just want boldness to be sharing the gospel with others, maybe there's an opportunity now to to just open up our hearts to the Spirit and see what he's going to do. 
So if that's you, if you want to respond at all to that, even if it's just one or two, if you just want to come to the front right now and we just pray together, all right? Don't be ashamed. Let's just pray together. It's awesome.